0: We're going to open up to Jonah chapter 3. So if you've got one of the Brown Bibles, open up to page 1365, and uh, I'm going to read the entire chapter. Let me give you a 30-second summary for those of you who are just stepping in for the first time today. We're page uh, 1365, Jonah chapter 3. Up to now simple thing. One man being told by God to leave his home, his country, go to a foreign country, foreign empire, and preach to one of the biggest cities in the world about how their end is, is, is nigh. They're doomed. And um, this man's called Jonah. His first answer to God is no. He turns around. He runs in the opposite direction. He drowns in the Mediterranean. He gets spewed out, swallowed, and then spewed out by fish back onto the beach. God revives him. And he recommissions him. And that's where we picked it up at the end of chapter 2, the last verse of that chapter. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Doesn't sound like it, but this is a good news for Jonah. So, (laughs) this guy's fish food, now he's fish vomit. But now he's about to be recommissioned. Then we pick it up in chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. I love that phrase because it speaks of the hope that, is in the, that we have as Christians. The second time, a new beginning, a new start, fresh hope, spoke to him a second time saying, arise. Now up to now, Jonah's been going down, down, down. Do you remember how this began that Jonah went down to Joppa and then he went down into the sea and down to the bottom of the sea and swallowed by the fish. And then God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose. Here he is in obedience to the call of God. He's no longer going down, running away. God is picking him up. He's experiencing the purpose for which he was created, to obey God and do his will. He arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called up for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Friends, there's very little about this story that makes any sense. I want you to to really get that as we begin. This is the worst kind of context to preach in. We think London's hard. Nineveh is much, much harder. Nineveh is like preaching, but being called to go to, um, to Iraq or around that region in the Levant today and go and preach to ISIL, or ISIS, or whatever they're calling themselves these days. These guys were bloodthirsty, horrifically violent people. I told you on the first week how The way they would punish their enemies is by skinning them and making a pile out of their skins. So, this is not the kind of people you want to be preaching to. I'm grateful that I'm preaching in London today. Um, I wouldn't want to be Jonah. So, this is a really terrible context to preach into. The preacher himself is one of the most reluctant preachers who's ever lived. You know, he doesn't really even. You know, he's bought, he just doesn't even want to preach. He doesn't want to, to, to go there and be the guy with the message to these people. And the message, it's hardly like this is the kind of stuff to win friends and influence people. 40 days and yet Nineveh, Nineveh will be overthrown. There's very few places where you go today and hear that kind of stark, dark, powerful uh, message of warning. And anyone is in the place. You know, You do hear it in some churches, but generally they're empty churches, right? So everything about this picture is wrong, and yet an entire city turns around and decides, we've got to do something. We've got to do something or we'll die. We need to get right with this God that we don't know who has threatened us. How do we explain this? The thing that you need to grasp, the one thing that I want us to see that's most important above all today, is that this has to be a work of God. And the word that, that Christians use for this is the word revival. It's the sort of thing that happens to individuals all the time. Unlikely characters, people who should never... Um, have become Christians, are transformed in this in a moment, just like happens to, to the whole city, right? People who are hardened, whose hearts are dark, who have lived hateful lives, lived lives far away from God. God loves to save those, those characters and revive them. You see this happening to individuals all the time. I had the enormous privilege of meeting brothers who were saved out of radical, radical uh, Islam in refugee camps in Lebanon, and had dreams about Jesus and gave their lives to Christ. Uh, one of them immediately told his family, his brother held a gun up to his head to try and kill him, but the gun misfired. So He's still alive today. He doesn't live in Lebanon anymore. Um, although he did for some time. He planted a church in the Hezbollah district of Beirut, just because you know, <laughs> he likes to court a little bit of controversy. Um, God does this sort of thing with individuals all the time. We're seeing this happen again and again in, across the world. Amazing testimonies of people turning around. And that's revival on a very, very small scale. But when God does this across an entire people group or across a geographic area, it, among many people spontaneously at one time, that's revival. Now, you may not know much about the history of Christianity, but it has been punctuated all across the world and certainly all through the history of this country with profound moves of God that we would call revival. Back in the 1700s, London was a very, very dark place to be. Lots of prostitution, lots of drunkenness. There was a gin house on every street, just about. And things had descended into debauchery. And it was around the same time that the French in their discontent revolted and overthrew the royal, royal family, and it became a republic. But something different happened in the UK. A couple of men started preaching the gospel, and their churches, in, their, in their churches, people were getting saved, so they decided to go and preach. Because the people couldn't fit in, they decided to go and preach in fields. Their names are George Whitfield, and John Wesley. The founders of two branches of Methodism. George Whitefield preached not so far away from where we live, over in Kennington, to a crowd of upwards of 20,000 people. But nothing but his voice, no PA, none of that stuff, just declaring the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And every time he preached, there would be howling and crying as people were struck to the heart, people who were far, far, far from God in a dark place and they were transformed in a, in a moment. Masses of people across the country became Christians in this spontaneous move of God. Churches were sprung up everywhere. Why do you think there are Methodist churches in the center of just about every town and village across the country? Something remarkable happened in those de- decades. Can't be explained, it had to be God, right? Last week, uh, or this week, I was over in the Rhondda Valley in Wales. It's one of the most depressing and, 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 and uh, difficult places to live in the whole of Europe. They struggled with the closure of the mines and the loss of jobs. And there is mass depression across the population. We're in one little town called Tonypandy, a small town. And if you walk down the high street of Tonypandy, left and right, every other building, it seems, is a chapel. Because back in 1859, a revival swept across Wales. And as preachers began to to preach about Jesus and the need to be born again, many, many thousands and perhaps hundreds of thousands of people were converted and began throwing up these chapels. You'll see them. They're built in the decades just after that revival. Now, of course, they're empty. It's a tragic picture. A very tiny percentage of Welsh people will call themselves Christians today. But the buildings still stand just about. One of them on the street where we were is called Ebenezer, which if you know your Bible means Rock of Memorial. And it's almost become a very literal Rock of Memorial. God moved here once upon a time. He did something special in these valleys. And it makes you... Long for him to do it again. You see churches closing down all across the city and all across this nation. You think, God, do it again. It has to happen in London. My hope for the city is partly that God will just work through the regular preaching of the gospel in churches that love Jesus, churches like ours where we we honor his work for us on the cross. But you also have this part of your heart, I certainly do, where you just long for God to do something extraordinary as he's done in the past. I want us to think through this chapter and just ask, what are the marks of revival when it happens? What are the common traits? What do we see happening in this chapter? Because this has to be one of the greatest revivals that ever happened in history. You may not have realized it when you're reading the chapter, but friends, this is extraordinary stuff. And I want to underline for you three things that are going on in this chapter that are the kind of common traits, marks, the distinguishing marks of revival. Three things: a preacher prepared, fear of God, and a longing for mercy. Let me begin with the preacher prepared. When you think about Revivals. those of you who've read of them, read the books, read the stories, read the biographies, what do you think is the essential element for God to, to do this, to do something extraordinary across a people group? I think probably our first answer to that is prayer, right? Um, we want to say it seems to be the pattern that God usually works in answer to a, a movement of prayer. And certainly that's happened many times in history. In New York in the 1800s, there was a prayer meeting that started one lunchtime with a few guys and day after day it gathered momentum and became hundreds and then thousands and then it became a revival in New York and it spread across other parts of the United States the hebridean revival out in the way way north of Scotland was birthed out of people who just kept longing in prayer god do something in our on our islands And certainly, I want to say to you, prayers very important. We've been talking about that lately. Please come to our prayer meetings. But I'm going to say to you, I don't think that's the essential thing here for this to happen. I don't think anyone was praying for Nineveh. The Israelites wouldn't have been praying for Nineveh. They're the enemies. The Ninevites weren't praying for Nineveh. They don't believe in God. So who was praying for Nineveh? Jonah clearly wasn't praying for Nineveh. (laughs) Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He hated the Ninevites. But sometimes, God doesn't have to work by our timetable, our longings, our desires, our requests. He can do something sovereignly, as he did in Nineveh, and he can do it in London. I don't think prayer is the answer. You might also say to me, well, I, surely it's a process, a kind of a tipping point. You know Malcolm Gladwell wrote that book, The Tipping Point, Point," and we see these tipping points all around us where suddenly things take off because they reach the right moment in, in, in psychology, sociology, and history, and all these things come together in a moment where something just explodes. Even something is... As useless as Pokemon Go, <laughs> just it just reached its historical moment where there was enough people with enough smartphones to, for it to explode. Surely you can explain these kind of religious movements by by those kinds of those kinds of um, easily explainable psychological and sociological factors. Actually, I don't think there's much about the Ninevites that makes sense of that account. Right? These people do not believe in Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. And it is on nothing, it's not like a, sp- a scale where there's this gradual move that begins in a corner of Nineveh and then explodes across the city as we've happened, seen happen in some revivals. This is overnight, day one. The preacher arrives, starts talking to them about God and something happens that cannot be explained. So I want to say to you, if you ask me, what's the essential thing? What do you see happening throughout, your, throughout history, in the Bible, again and Again. The common characteristic, and I would answer this, is that God prepares a man or a group of men and women to share the gospel. Sometimes it only begins with one person. How do we explain this? I don't know. But God somehow has decided that he won't work outside of the agency of individuals who are prepared to do his work. One of my favorite quotes from any book ever, is a a book on prayer by by E.M. Bounds, but it starts with this startling paragraph that just grabs you on page one where he says this. We are constantly on a stretch, if not on a strain, to devise new methods, new plans, new organizations to advance the church and secure enlargement and efficiency for the gospel. So he's saying we're always racking our brains to figure out how to get our churches to be more fruitful and grow. He says this trend of the day has a tendency to lose sight of the man. And here and there he means the person. Or sink the man in the plan or organization. But God's plan is to make much of the man, far more of him than of anything else. Men are God's method. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. Now, I'm not trying to give you an excuse for ambitious glory hunting in the Christian life. That's not what this is about. But you've got to understand that it seems to be an invariable rule that God selects and chooses people through whom He, w- he wants to work and do mighty things. Why? Well, that helps us make a lot more sense of Jonah 1 to 2. You know, the last few weeks that we've been working through Jonah 2, it's been hard and heavy, hasn't it? It's God disciplining a guy, chastising him, punishing him, it seems, it feels, for his his waywardness. And we've come out of those messages feeling, oh my goodness. And I find it hard to preach. You guys find it even harder to listen. (laughs) And then you think, well, why? And now we can begin to make sense of it because God refuses to work except through a person. So he's got to get his man and get him ready. doesn't matter what it takes, he's going to prepare this man for the work to which, to which he's called him. And not only that, there's also a kind of a proportionality that the more a person has suffered, the more often God uses them. Jonas suffered at God's hand. Praise God for that. God used him mightily. This is something you see again and again in the Bible and history. Think about Jesus, our Savior. I love the fact that as his ministry began, before he preached, probably for the first time, he'd fasted. Actually, I think I can correct myself. He preached in the synagogue once, then went off and fasted for 40 days, then came back, and his ministry kind of began officially. But he'd fasted in the desert. He'd wrestled with the devil. He'd, he'd caused his body to be bowed in submission to the call of God by refusing food for those days. And then God took him out of the desert, led by the Holy Spirit, and launched his ministry. You think about Paul, the Apostle Paul. Saved from his dark, you know, the best word that you can really account for what he was like at the time is a kind of jihadi. But he's a jihadi Jew. And he's saved from, and his encounter with Jesus wrecks him when he realizes for the first time that he's been killing Christ's own people and that they're precious to the living Savior. He's wrecked, his soul, his conscience is tortured for those three days when Jesus makes him blind before he's healed. And even after that, that's not the end of Paul's suffering. You read his own accounts of suffering, he's shipwrecked multiple times, he's stoned. He's, he's, he's beaten and flogged. There is no end to this man's suffering, but as one bishop once said, wherever he went, there was a riot or a revival. Wherever I go, they serve tea. <laughs> Paul's suffering prepared him for the mighty way in which God used him. You think about your history books, Martin Luther. The biggest revival that's ever hit Europe was the Protestant Reformation. When eyes were opened all across this continent, and people began to see the gospel for the first time, because they'd been caught up in ritualism and religion. I go to church. I I listen to the Latin. I go through the mass. I go through all the all the all the activities. I try and be religious and hope that this God, who I don't know, will have mercy on me. And then Martin Luther, he personally went through extraordinary torture of soul struck down by his own sense of guilt and shame and the feeling that he could never escape the wrath of God, and then reading the book of Romans one day. Through all this tortured conscience, through all this suffering, God opened his eyes. The just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. He read those words, and in a moment, he understood the gospel. That faith is a gift from God, and that righteousness is a gift from God in response to that faith. That it's Christ's gift to you that he took your punishment upon himself to give you his record of righteousness. And When Luther got that, out of all his suffering, he became a fearless champion for Christ. I think we're just, uh, just past the 499th anniversary of the day when he posted his 95 theses, nailed them to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral, and something, a spark was lit across Europe that has not been put out even to this day. But it came out of suffering. I recently had the experience of reading Spurgeon's autobiography. Spurgeon was probably the most successful preacher this country's ever known in terms of his own ability to to draw people into a large church which was built down the road in Elephant and Castle called Metropolitan Tabernacle. Seated about 6,000 people in the, in the 1800s, in the Victorian era. But not only that, he trained up hundreds of pastors. Everywhere you go, you see churches that were planted by Spurgeon or one of his spiritual sons. But reading his autobiography, this guy was reading the Puritans from the age of about five He was a a freak of nature, but for some reason, he struggled in his conscience until about the age of 15, and he felt tortured in his heart that he didn't know God, that he didn't know forgiveness, and he spends about 70 pages telling you how depressed he was, and by the end of reading it, I just wanted to, you know, throw the book away and cry, it's not pleasant reading, but it shows you the torture of Saul, the agony that he went through, so that when he eventually understood the gospel for the first time... It's like the lights turned on for him. This boy, prepared from a young age, became the preacher who saw thousands turn to Christ. And in fact, we're still seeing people run to Christ because of all the books he wrote. He tells you so many more stories. The man, John Wesley, who founded the Methodists here in the UK. You know, his ministry began in absolute failure. He'd gone over to do a mission trip to the USA, those poor pagan Americans, they need some more Wesleys today, don't they? <laughs> they went over there and uh, he uh, preached to them, but it was an abysmal failure. He came back, but he had never really understood the gospel. He was kind of born into a religious home and uh, his mama prayed for him, but he never really got what Luther eventually got, that the just shall live by faith. Do you know one day they were reading Luther, the introduction to Luther's commentary to the Romans, which is obviously is what people did before Netflix existed. So they were reading it in a group of them out loud. And uh, I've never done this. We don't get people around on a Friday night to read the introduction to Luther's commentary to the Romans. And as they were reading it, on Aldersgate Street, Wesley's heart, he said, was strangely warmed. It's like that butterfly's feeling when you get it for the first time. And he realizes he hadn't been preaching Christ at all, all this time. And then he hears about Wesley's success. And Wesley tells him, John, preach outdoors. Preach in the fields. Preach to as many people as will listen to you. And as they begin preaching, God uses them. These men were prepared through suffering. God prepared them For the work that they then did. And that's what happens with Jonah. I want you to take encouragement on a couple of levels. The one is this that your suffering can be redeemed when you respond well to the living God. You know, at the end of Jonah 2, at the darkest moment of Jonah's life, as he's in the belly of the fish, having having drowned in the Mediterranean. Do you remember how when God turns it around for him, he then says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's like Jonah offers himself up and says, I've quit from disobeying you, from being the ruler of my own life. I offer you my life entirely. And all of the suffering is now redeemed in that moment as he lays himself down metaphorically on the altar and says, I belong to you, God. What I have vowed, I will sacrifice. And I think he means myself. I'll go to Nineveh. I'll be killed there if you want me to. Your suffering can be redeemed when you respond well to God. And here's the other thing I want you to take encouragement from. Our gracious father specializes in using flawed people. As we'll find out next week, Jonah is still one of the most conflicted characters in all the Bible. He has all this success, and then he gets really depressed about it. He's like, seriously, God, you had to save Nineveh? I would have preferred it if you'd just blown them up, nuked them like I was, I was predicting. So this guy is a seriously flawed man. He's rebelled from God. He's going to rebel. There's all kinds of mess in his heart. But our gracious Father specializes in using flawed people. It's there in those first verses we read in in chapter 3 that the word of God came to him a second time. You think you've messed up too badly. You think you've disqualified yourself from ever being used by God. The word of God came to Jonah a second time. And God said, arise. I take such encouragement from this. still presses this question, doesn't it? Does God need to use a man like Jonah to do his work? And yeah, on the one hand, I want to say absolutely not. God can do things, extraordinary things, without our help. He doesn't need my help. But for whatever reasons known only to God, he refuses to work without people. I think this is part of the reason why Paul wrote in Romans 10. How can they call on him, that's Jesus, in whom they have not believed? It's impossible, right? You can't pray to Jesus unless you've believed in him. He says, how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? Paul's saying to us, there is an absolute necessity. If we want to see a work of God in this world... Men and women have to say willingly, I'll be your mouthpiece, God. Because God refuses to work outside of people. He could just appear to everyone simultaneously. He could just flick on our TV screens. Jesus, in in the flesh, preaching to us. But for whatever reasons, God has never decided to do that. He said, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use my church. I'm going to use my body. They are my mouthpiece to this dark world. You are the light of the world, Jesus said. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a stand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Are you being prepared for something? It's the first mark of revival. A preacher prepared. Here's a second. The fear of God. How do you think Londoners would have responded to Jonah and his message. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I've actually seen these kind of characters in London. I've seen how London responds to these kinds of people. (laughs) The very gentle end of the spectrum, they get sworn at and ignored and mocked a little bit. Slightly more amping up a little bit, they get asbos. Do you remember? Some of you maybe have not been in London long enough for this, but there was a man. I, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't like this man. He wasn't a nice man. I tried talking to him. He was a horrible man. But he used to preach on, on Oxford Street about Jesus. And uh, he was a scouser, so he used to go, do you want to be a sinner or a winner? <laughs> Anyway, you went and talked to him, and he'd, he'd tell you, what are you doing shopping on Oxford Street? You're going to hell. Do you know that? I mean, so this guy was not the kind of guy you want to get along with. I, I, I'm not defending the, what, who he was or what he did, but do you know how London responded to him? They slapped an ASBO on him, an anti-social behavior order, which means that he can never go near Oxford Street for fear of being arrested. You amp it up a bit. Sometimes people get locked up for this kind of language. I think you could have forgiven the Ninevites for thinking this guy was crazy frothing at the mouth, preaching doom in the city which is the most successful city in the world. Why would London respond like that to this kind of message? Three illusions. There's the illusion of invulnerability. We live in the post-Cold War age. In the Cold War, people thought that they could die at any moment. Now we think we're going to live forever. There's the illusion of goodness. We look around, we think we're decent folk. We're good people. There's no way God could judge or would ever judge us. And there's the illusion of divine senility slash benevolence that if there is a God out there, he's so kind like a smiling senile granddad, he would never judge us. There is, as Psalm 36 puts it, no fear of God in their eyes. And we react. I react. When I read this, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, I think it sounds harsh. You know, some people say my preaching's heavy. Thank God you don't have Jonah. You know? (laughs) You should be thankful, friends. We could find this stuff heavy. Why do we talk about judgment all the time? But just bear in mind a couple of factors here. One is that Nineveh is not innocent. These are very evil people. What kind of God ignores that? I think judgment is is good news when you understand that sin has to be dealt with one way or another. Here's another thing you've got to factor in. The fact that Jonah's warning them is the evidence of God's kindness, right? 40 days, that's a little bit of a while to think about what's going to happen and deal with yourself before God, which is, of course, what they do. And friends, Just in case you think this is just an Old Testament thing and we can ignore it, don't you realize this is exactly how the apostles preached? When Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, so this is not long after Jesus has been crucified by the the people in Jerusalem. And then the Holy Spirit breaks out and people start gathering around listening to this preacher Peter, this fisherman. And he starts telling them about Jesus who's been killed and risen from the dead. And for whatever reason, it's revival their hearts for the first time are struck and they feel shame and guilt for what they did to Jesus. And they say, what must we do to be saved? And what does Peter say? He says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. That's kind of, the clue is in the word, save yourselves. Salvation is unnecessary unless you're going to be saved from Something. So a gospel without judgment is no gospel at all. How can it be good news unless your future is potentially very dark? The necessity of preaching the gospel, the necessity of calling people to salvation is because the future is judgment without Christ. And it makes us squirm, doesn't it? I think, Seriously? God is righteous. So Paul opened his message to the city of Athens. They'd never heard about Jesus. They knew very little about any gods except the Greek gods. But he preaches to them for the first time. Tells them about this one God who made everything. The one they call the unknown God. And as he's bringing his message to a, a conclusion... He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And the proof of it, he says, is that that man's been risen from the dead. I'm just trying to underline for you, friends, that this, this note of judgment isn't just a Jonah thing. It's not just a Nineveh thing. It's it's God's message to the world. And it's something that we ought to take seriously. The biggest issue then, in the light of this, this message, this sermon that Jonah preached to this city, the biggest issue is how you respond when you hear about that. I think there's basically three options. One is that you disbelieve it and do nothing about it, which is what basically most people today are doing. If there is a God, I don't think that he's a God of judgment. I'm not sure there is a God at all. And I'm pretty sure that when I meet him, I'll get to go and float on a cloud with him one day. Disbelieve and do nothing. And then there's the people who believe. They say, "Yep, I'm pretty sure I'm going to hell. I'm going to have a party in hell. Yeah, man. And they say, or they, they believe that there's something amiss, that there's sin to deal with in your heart, but you just do nothing about it. It's like all the people who see the disgusting pictures on the back of smoking packets and buy them anyway. I heard the story of when I was in South Africa near Cape Town, there's a place called Fishhook. And in Fishhook, there's a bay. And you know, that part, the southern peninsula of Africa, the seas are inhabited by great white sharks, the biggest shark in the world. And there was an old woman in her 70s who every day would put on her rubber cap and swim across a bay in Fishhook. And she would swim every morning, at the crack of dawn, in the cold waters. And uh, she used to say to people, I've heard, uh, that she thought probably a shark will get her one day. But she didn't mind. It's not a bad way to go. And so she kept swimming, kept swimming, kept swimming. And while shark attacks are a relatively rare thing, at the same time, you, don't, you know, your, your chances increase greatly the more you go out <laughs> into shark-infested waters. And sure enough, this woman one day went out and all that was found was this rubber cap that floated away as she was consumed by this shark. And this is what people are like. They, they know that there's something coming. They know that surely if the universe has any justice at all, I don't necessarily understand it, but there's any justice at all, the wrongs we've done must be righted. But to do nothing is to be like that woman. Just carry on regardless. The right way is to respond to God, to hear the message, to believe, and to do what he wants. What tips a person to the point where, like the Ninevites, they respond rightly to the message that they hear? What makes a person go from unbelief to belief, and then not just from belief, but belief to responsiveness to God and his message of danger? And I think there's a couple of things that, that cause that. That first of all, it begins with the dawning sense, the revelation of God's absolute holiness. His perfection, his purity. That he cannot abide evil. I was listening to a friend of mine, Lex Lazides, preach this week about the holiness of God. And I thought he had this wonderful definition for those of us who just need to put a bit of flesh on these bones and understand what are we talking about here when we talk about the holiness of God. He put it like this. The holiness of God is that quality in him which in his complete self-sufficiency Sets him apart from all others. The word in its root actually just means a distinctiveness, a set-apartness. It is his absolute perfection in purity, righteousness, glory, and majesty. His holiness permeates all that he is at all times. In all that he purposes, all that he declares, all that he accomplishes, he is preeminently, perfectly, and eternally holy. It has incorporated in it, he said, these two ideas. God's absolute separation from creation. That we can't touch him or even look upon him without dying. And his total completeness. He was saying that at the root of our word for holy is the same root uh, for the word health. It means a total completeness, wholeness in oneself as opposed to our brokenness on account of our sin. The fact that our being is in a state of crumbling. And for, God, for people to come to that point where they fear God enough to actually do something, it begins with a revelation of his mighty holiness, his majestic, incomparable holiness that he is so different from me. But then it reflexes back upon yourself in the second factor that it naturally makes you look at yourself and feel your deep, deep unworthiness before him. I'm not sure when we see what looks on the surface like a move of God. You know, thousands of people in churches or things like that. But it's devoid of these two characteristics characteristics—an awe before the holiness of God and an acknowledgement of our unworthiness. Then it isn't a move of God at all. Because when God moves in revival power, it always bursts inside people this deep fear of God. You know, it's like it produces in you the sensation of shame. That, you know, the the tiny example of this, small, tiny percentage of what you experience at this moment is like how you'd feel when you turn up To a wedding and realize that you're dressed in completely inappropriately. It's one of the parables Jesus told about people showing up dressed inappropriately, and he said they were turned away at the door. That sense of not belonging, of standing out, of being ashamed of of yourself. But friends, when it's not just about your external dress, but it's like your soul has been opened up and laid bare before God, you see his holiness and you feel your darkness. It's that sensation blown up a thousandfold. This is why the, the prophet Isaiah, when God says the Lord appeared to him in the temple. He's going through his duties or praying, whatever he's doing in the temple. And it says that he saw a vision of Adonai, the Lord, appeared to him in the temple. And angels are flying around him, covering their faces and crying, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. It's that dual experience, the holiness of God, my dark unworthiness. But it's never left there. Because at times of revival, there's this third factor that God produces in people. A longing for God's mercy. Even in Jonah's sermon to Nineveh, there is this seed of hope. Because as he says to the city, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That word overthrown has a double meaning. The one meaning that we rightly begin to understand is the meaning of destroyed. It means this city will be destroyed. But its other meaning, and it sometimes occurs in this definition elsewhere, is a turning upside down, a reversal, a change, or a change of heart. In other words, there's a kind of a play on words going on here. Isn't this exactly what Jesus does to us? He comes to us in this confrontational way and calls upon us to repent of our sin and commit to him our lives. But doesn't he say that integral to that is the willingness to die? So Jesus says to you, there's a period of time and then your life will be overthrown. Either you'll be overthrown in facing me as the judge at the end of time. Or you'll be overthrown when you bow willingly before me. Surrender your heart to me. And I defeat you. I conquer you for your good. For your benefit. That you might know real life. That you might die to your sin. That you might experience freedom like you've never known before. And know liberty and joy in me. Either way, you can be overthrown. But which one sounds better? Throughout this chapter, there are these five things that you see going on in terms of their response to God. In other words, the kind of the how... Of, of why they were overthrown in this way rather than the judgment way. I want to just quickly skim through the chapter and show you all five before we finish. The first is this, their faith. Faith is produced in their hearts. Is there in verse 5. It says, the people of Nineveh believed God. I, you can't really understand how that happened. Because most of the time when I tell people about Jesus who don't know him or about God, they don't believe me. I can talk to them I'm blue in the face, but I can't produce that belief in someone's heart. But the Bible says that sometimes the word of God is accompanied by the power of the Spirit, so that suddenly what would otherwise just be religious words suddenly have the ring of truth to someone's heart. And faith meets the word of God, as an, and the word of God produces faith, so that they seize on to the words and they believe for the first time. It's like their eyes are open. Lex, who we were listening to this week, tells us how he went from atheism to to believing in God. And he said, it was against my will. I didn't want it. But he started reading the Gospel of John. And as John's Gospel was just kind of washing over him, he said, against my will, I started to believe that it was true. That's faith. It's a miracle of God. It's produced in the heart. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what happened in these people. The first thing is faith. The second is God producing in them humility. Because you see in that verse, verse 5, in the next one, how it says they called for a fast and put on sackcloth. So they dressed in rough materials. So you can get rid of your 400 thread count sheets and think about burlap sacks they start dressing in, from the greatest of them to the least of them. So it doesn't matter how noble they are, they're getting rid of their designer gear. And they're putting on sacks because they're saying all of us need to lower ourselves before the living God. And the the king then tells them to do that and do more of that. He does it himself. And he tells them to fast. So you see in all of this stuff, a humility. In other words, they are no longer making excuses. I think this is probably one of the greatest reasons why people don't want to humble themselves before God today is because people prefer to think of themselves as victims rather than as responsible beings. We're all messed up, but it's the fault of our parents or the fault of society or the fault of our friends. And I, I wouldn't deny that those things have a part to play in how screwed up we can be. But as long as you look at yourself as a victim and not a responsible person, you keep making excuses and blaming others. But when you humble yourself, you say... Yeah, things have been done to me, and I've been messed up, but I've also made choices that I'm ashamed of. I've desired things I shouldn't desire. I said things I should never have said. There's a darkness in my heart that I cannot root, it doesn't matter how much self-control I have. It's called sin. And they humbled themselves. They're no longer justifying themselves in pride, trying to bolster up their sense of self-worth and self-image. They're lying on their faces in the dust and they're scooping out the ashes from the fire to put them on their heads and smear on their faces and say, God, I'm broken. The third factor is this kind of spontaneity or authenticity You notice how in verse 6 the king tells them to fast and to repent before God. But if it were just a command from an authority on high, I would doubt the authenticity or the genuineness of what was going on. I think it's very deliberate that it says in verse 5 that the people believed and that they started this mourning long before the king even caught up with what was going on. It was a grassroots movement an authentic thing springing from the heart of these people. Not because I've been told to by my king, but because I know I fear for my life. I fear this God. That's revival. That's the authentic way in which God moves. That's how it's happened so many times in the past. Something just just moves on people's hearts and it, it's not from on high, it's not from the Houses of Parliament, it's not from the Royal Palace, it's not from the BBC, it's from the people. Spontaneous, authentic desire to get right with God, regardless of what anyone else thinks. A fourth factor is, is repentance, which means a turning around, doesn't it? And this does come through in the king's command because he tells him in verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. A turning to God has to involve this decisive decision or desire to get away from the, the past that you're ashamed of. Anywhere where you hear a message of just God's forgiveness that never challenges you in your sin. That's not, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it's an either or. You've got to turn from your sin to embrace Christ. And it's not, it's not that you'll turn per- perfectly, but you will turn Willingly. And it's not that you'll turn consistently, because you know you'll fail time and time again, but it's that you'll turn persistently. You'll keep wanting to embrace Christ instead of your sin. And it's not that it's a once and for all thing, but it's that you will, you will run after him in increasing measure, day after day, week after week, year after year, for the rest of your life. That's what God is looking for. This is what began in the hearts of these Ninevites. Who knows, he says, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Yes, God has anger against sin. If he did not, then Christ's death on the cross would be a tragic tragic waste, an unnecessary thing but the very reason that death had to take place was because of God's just anger against you. But God in his love decided that he would pour it all out upon his son. And Jesus in his love came willingly to the father and said, Take this cup from me, which he meant the cup of wrath, but not my will, yet your will be done. And so he drank that cup to the dregs. Which means that for all those who take refuge in Christ, anger has been turned to kindness. We'll put it like this in the book of Romans, chapter 5. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We've been made righteous because we've been washed, coated, smeared with the blood of Christ. Like those lambs that they used to kill every year at Passover. Passover. They'd smear the blood on the door of their houses. Jesus' blood is smeared upon everyone who says, I believe in him. And it's a marker for all time. Your sin's been dealt with. It's been wiped away. Which means, brother and sister, no more shame. No more fear of dread of God's anger. No more of a sense of living under his displeasure. But rather a sense of being a child before a loving father. Who has turned his wrath away from you. Poured it out fully. Exhausted it. On his son at the cross. And he reaches out in embrace to you. There are three ways we can respond to this chapter today. The first is God save me. For those of you who are not Christian. Because I don't know that you'll ever hear a clear message. Clearer message of what God wants to do for you. The second is God change me. Which applies equally to anyone here who's not a Christian. Or anyone who is a Christian. But just like Jonah was transformed to some degree. And just like Nineveh was changed, revival always begins in us. You know, whenever revivals have happened in church history, they don't start outside the walls of the church. They start inside the church. They start with Christians who see God's holiness for the first time and feel struck down, and their hearts are renewed and transformed. And as they are revived, it spills out into the way they talk about God in the streets and to the people they know. But it always starts, revival always starts in-house with people who are consecrated to God. So the second response is, God, change me. Does God need to change you? Do you need to deal with things before him? Here's the last response. God, use me. And I read this stuff, even as I'm talking to you about this stuff. Talking about how God can use one person to turn a city upside down. There's a heart cry that rises up, isn't there? God, use me. And why not? Why not? We just have to, like Jonah, be those who will, with the voice of thanksgiving, sacrifice to him what I've vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There is a precious moment when we take communion for us to respond in the way that is appropriate to us. If you are not a Christian and still asking questions and not sure about any of this, then just let the communion pass you by. But maybe today, for the first time, you want to take it and say, I want to be saved by Jesus. Then take it. Eat a good chunk of that bread. Drink a good swig of that wine. And say, Father, forgive me of my sin because of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And he will. He'll do it right now. For the rest of us, as we pray, God, change me and God, use me. Let's eat this meal with celebration. That God can do for you what he did for Jonah. The word of the Lord came to him a second time. We eat, we drink the grace of God in the hope that he will turn us around, use us for his pleasure and his glory. Amen? Amen? Amen.